Welcome to the Guernsey Daily, I'm Ollie Gu. And I'm Rob Byrne. We've got candidate interviews every weekday and a taste of what's going on across the island in the build-up to the historic 2020 election. We aim to be as local as Deputy Barry Paint. I think we've already done that one, Ollie. Yeah, I know, but I just couldn't be bothered to think of another one. <laughs> they get the gist though, right? Yeah, I think let's uh, call it a day on those. Coming up in today's episode, we hear from our resident fact-checker, Andrew Barnes. Yeah, he's been reviewing claims made by candidates at a hustings event. By the definitions which have a practical effects, like Guernsey is largely not considered to be a tax haven. From the terms of the secrecy jurisdiction, it, it's certainly up there. Also, we'll hear from Deputy Victoria Oliver, who wants to see the states acting more decisively in the next term. We do need to keep moving forward. I would much prefer that we stop wasting money on going one way, changing our minds, then going another way. More from Deputy Oliver shortly. First, Rob, there's lots of great stuff to dig into on social media. Um, So let's start with some of our favourite moments from the past few weeks. Um, I wanted to highlight um, (laughs) Barry Breo um, posted on Facebook. And it was a a picture of a no junk mail sign. And uh, he, he simply put, what to do? Every politician's dilemma, in brackets. I did, by the way. Um, <laughs> I suppose it it uh, depends on what you consider junk, right? I'd hope that, you know, prospective uh, deputies would have, uh, you know, a sort of a strong enough opinion of themselves that they don't categorise their views as junk. But, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's not whether them... or not. <laughs> it's not the opinion that themselves that matters, is it? So what do the voters think? Um, I also saw something similar where... Um, I, I, actually, I'm not sure if it was Deputy Bray as well talking about whether to canvas on a Sunday because, you know, day of rest. Some candidates chipping in and saying, you know, people don't really want to be disturbed or, you know, there are other things to do in life. And I wonder, would you... I guess people are more likely to be home on a Sunday, um, but would you necessarily want to be disturbed? Mm, but then, yeah, you're otherwise working and I don't know if I... I think I'd rather be disturbed when I hadn't just finished an, an eight-hour shift, to be honest. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I, I guess there's probably... And every, every every person's different in everyone's circumstances. Some people work at the weekends, of course. So, yeah, maybe... Exactly, um, and if you're having a pyjama day, it's it's great because, you know, if you can't be bothered to speak to the candidate, you just turn up to the door in your boxes and you scare them away, so... <laughs> <laughs> I've had no one knock on the door yet, but I, it sounds like that's probably pretty normal i don't know perhaps uh, no, they've heard the podcast <laughs> steering clear of you now <laughs> <laughs> no well i mean they don't know where i live or i hope well no i suppose i'm on the electoral well yeah no anyway the more i think about that no maybe that is true <laughs> <laughs> um one thing i saw as well was that we've had another poster stolen um again perhaps that's not too much of a surprise considering there are a lot of them around the island. Uh, this one was uh, a tweet from Ross Lebrun, who's been on the show, and his uh, went missing from the Kobo service station. And uh, he says that someone from there flagged it up and he had the opportunity to replace it. It's a shame a certain individual has to try and influence other people's votes and interfere with the election, tweets Ross Lebrun. So he seems to think he knows who's done it. How intriguing. I'm I'm a little worried that you always seem to know when you know you, you've got uh, an ear to the ground on the poster stealing. Rob, I'm <laughs> I'm worried saying? it's you to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and another thing that I saw is uh, candidates <laughs> complaining about, and and this is one thing that's come out quite consistently uh, among the ones we've talked to is is the deluge of emails that they get. 
Now, often these are from individuals or groups who are asking the same questions of every candidate. And it appears uh, some of the candidates have got into the habit of that classic thing of replying to all when they don't need to. Oh. Deputy Jonathan the talk in, in, in response to one of the tweets says that he uh, he gave up trying to teach people they shouldn't reply to all at around in around 2013 <laughs> and a couple of others <laughs> chipping in and saying uh, get used to it if you're elected <laughs> um I want to talk about um we we've got a few nerdy friends uh, I don't think they'd mind us calling them that we won't name them so we can call them anything we want i suppose um but they they've started building up a list of the candidates that they think are going to get in and in which order they're going to be voted in which is i mean painstaking really to to put a list like that together and also extremely nerdy and and to what end i'm not really sure but it's quite it's quite an interesting little phenomenon that uh, i don't think happened any time before island-wide voting Oh, it's a bit of bit of political punditry. Uh, sweepstakes, uh, I believe, are are also on the cards. I, th- I think I think I'm right in saying that you know among candidates, that's even something that's being done. I quite like the one. There's a competition in the Guernsey Press. If you don't want to go as far as doing 38 candidates, if you want to t- pick your super seven, as they're calling it, your top seven, and the order in which you think they'll be voting, you can pay five pounds. This was I think in the Guernsey Press last week. And uh, you can win fifty pounds. I think the money goes to to grow limited the charity, so it's uh, it's not a money making. Uh, well, uh, presume it's not a money making venture. Yeah, but I quite like that idea. I thought you know pick your top seven. I started thinking about it the other day. And you're yeah. about to share them on the podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I think. Uh, no, I'm sure no one really cares what I think. But yeah, I've got I've got a rough idea. <laughs> Up next, it's Deputy Victoria Oliver, who sits on the Committee for Home Affairs and is Vice President of the Development and Planning Authority. Victoria Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining the Guernsey Daily. Um, First of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Who are you? Who is Victoria Oliver? I'm a 37-year-old businesswoman. I have three children and I I am a chartered surveyor by trade, and I've been a politician for the last four years. I was on the Home Affairs Committee. I was also on the Seafront Enhancement, the University Working Party, the Optimising the Land and and Property Portfolio, and also Vice President of Development and Planning. So let's talk about those four years then. Um, what, what did you achieve in your four years? What are the things that you're sort of most proud of? What would people know you best for? That's really hard because I'm not one to get in the press or anything like that. I am more one to actually get on with the work. Home Affairs have actually achieved quite a lot during the term. The population management has been introduced. The data protection has been introduced. The sexual legislation has been, offences legislation has been introduced. But not everything but is everybody is actually happy with. So these do need changing slightly or tweaking to actually make so the public are happy with them. I I guess the inference there is that perhaps a lot of deputies work isn't uh, in the public's eye. Is that sort of where you're coming from? I think that the state's um, 
where you have the states meeting, they are very well publicised. But when you're working on the committee, there isn't half of it's not publicised at all because, and a lot of people don't, still don't even know that you have so many committee meetings. Like everyone thinks you break up for the summer, where actually the summer is your busiest time trying to get all the policy papers in for the September meeting. That, it, it, yeah, not many people realise that. And you did um, you did quite notably fall out with your uh, your colleagues on the Home Affairs Committee, um, sort of quite publicly, I suppose, because it went to a state's vote. How do you think that episode is going to sit with voters going into this election? I have no idea. Some people have said that it should never have got that far. Some people have said that why couldn't it have been sorted out in the committee meetings? Other people have said good for you, you stand up for yourself. Like the electorate and how they vote is very personal to each individual. So I couldn't comment whether it's done me well, not or or bad, basically. But I do think that I would have preferred to have sorted out within the committee, but that wasn't possible. So the states made their vote um, and the policy paper was pulled. There has been criticism, um, particularly from the parties, um, that the reason the parties have been formed is because people in the states can't agree on anything and there are these spats and there are these arguments and um you know feuds are had are are you worried that that sort of um, mentality will continue in the next term personally i don't see how a party that will change but um even within parties, I'm sure there's going to be different um, views held sometimes on because even every party, they cannot actually know what's coming up in the state. So there might be something that comes up in the states where they're either going to have to say this is an open vote for everybody to make their own mind about or actually this is what's going to have to happen. And you might not like that being in a party. I, I don't know. Yeah. And what do you make of this emergence of, of party politics then, Victoria? I think it's Guernsey's got an it's an interesting time because I think that you can tell people want change, but it's just very difficult to know how to change for the best. And if parties work, then it will be I think it could be a good thing for Guernsey. But what you could have is that you have two parties getting in at the moment. One party goes and makes a whole lot of change, the next term People don't like it, so they go back. And then it could just go backwards and forwards, like you see in the UK, sort of the Labour and Conservative. And I don't think that would be beneficial to the to Guernsey. We do need to keep moving forward in a slow but managed way. If that's what works, then unfortunately that's what's going to have to be for Guernsey. I would much prefer that we stop wasting money on going one way, changing our minds, then going another way. You can just see how much money was spent on the waste, how much money is now being spent on schools. And one thing I just can't stand is wasting money. And that is what the states seem to be very good at. And what would you personally do then to try and stop that wastage if re-elected? I think consultation fees are such a big issue. We have Well, for home affairs, not that home affairs wanted them, but we got put upon. P&R organised a review of what we were doing, and that cost 600000 just to come up and say that we were doing exactly the same. And a lot of the service chiefs were just like, we don't know 
if that is feasible at all. And when we did extra work, it wasn't. And I think that a lot of the time, how we could save money is say, this is what we're doing. Come up with ideas there and then put them to the consultation and say, right, how can we improve on what we're doing? Not just going over old hat, which our officers have come up with the ideas in the first place anyway. Okay, so that's one way sort of uh, cut down, I guess, be more efficient in that process and, and perhaps only consult when you absolutely have to. Uh, any other ideas? I would like to see the property portfolio sorted out because it's one of the state's largest assets and we're currently not managing the property properly. We're not using the buildings that we have effectively and the buildings that we have empty, we could actually be making money on. So I would really like to see something going on more than what is at the moment with our property. Yeah, but didn't you just... Aren't, isn't that your current role at the moment? Is that not something you should already be on top of? It is, and I was on the la- optimising the land and property portfolio, which we set out a policy letter to get somebody on board to actually drive this policy forward, and we ended up somebody with very little knowledge of surveying. And that's the reason for it not progressing in your view? I think it's one of the reasons. I think a lot of the reasons are that it's put in the too difficult job box. And it's a big job that needs doing. But I think, as I said to the Home Department, let me go in for two days and I will try help. I phoned up several times to try get this done. And actually, you could really tell they didn't want me interfering. And then I got told I didn't have the right PPI cover, which I said, well, I do because Um, I was at the time consulting for another firm, so I did have PPI cover. Then they used another excuse, and they just didn't want a deputy actually doing the work. They wanted us to set the parameters, which when you've set the parameters and it's not being done, it's very difficult then to sort of say, right, how do we do it? Because they then got moved to P&R, and I'm not on P&R, so I had no say-so in that. So how do you how how do you address that problem? How do you how do you fix it? If um, I mean, it just sounds like one one person being blamed after another. And I, I don't want to play the game get the blame game. That's not what that's not what I'm about. But I think one thing that I personally think is that when you have these special issues like this, if a deputy knows about the issues, then they should sit on PR whenever a property issue comes up and we can sort of almost give a, an opinion on it and say this is actually how you should be doing it because I was horrified that when we were looking to move the probation from the market square to the on top of the tourist office I said can we have some surveyors in because I just want to talk this through because I don't think it makes financial sense just to me moving and they brought in architects instead of surveyors and I was just like I I sort of said I'm not being rude to you guys but what good are you to me when you're not surveyors you're architects so that's the kind of way that I think we really just need to actually be on top of it I personally think we should have deferred that uh, and moved it to the next agenda but the committee wanted to progress with that so that's what happened. And on these kind of issues I mean you, you know we're going into quite granular detail which about which committees are involved, individuals in certain cases on, on, on certain issues. And, you know, political watchers will be aware of, 
you know, some of these outstanding issues. But to a lot of people who are voting for the first time or, you know, they're not sort of deeply ingrained in the island's politics. Do you worry that by sort of getting into these individual issues and saying, you know, it's to do with this relationship between that committee and this committee and this individual and that individual, it kind of doesn't really have much of an appeal to it. Are you getting sort of too granular with these things? Is there a danger of that? I think there's a danger of sort of like getting in the weeds in some things. But when you're talking about the property portfolio, you're, I think the figure is, uh, I want to say 36 billion that we've got under asset. It's not a small issue. This is a huge asset. And it's probably one of the largest assets the state actually has. I think that needs sorting. And we need to make sure that it's run efficiently. When you have properties not maintained, when you come to actually maintaining them, you have a much bigger bill than if you were just maintaining at the start. So I don't think it's that, I don't think property you can classify as a granular. If I was talking about a very small issue, then I think that is a danger of you're forgetting about the main policies and you're just getting what you're just becoming a one sort of uh, policy person where that's not me. Yeah, and how how does property figure in Guernsey's future economic recovery? Because there's a lot of talk about balancing the books, obviously. Do you see it having a, perhaps a, an even more important role in doing that, given the current sort of uh, anticipation of a of Guernsey kind of going into the red in terms of its public finances? I think the big problem with property is sometimes you have to spend money to actually get it to a workable order and something that you can actually get money from so a lot of the time it's put in the this needs um, looking at but at the moment we don't have the finances to spend on that so let's look at something else so I imagine it does feed well it does feature very low down on the revive and thrive but there are lots more things that we can do be doing to make efficiency and a lot of them do come within the states and I'd like to touch on health and social care because uh, you, you say in your manifesto it's a d- deeply personal issue for you. Can you just tell us a little bit ab- about that? I was misdiagnosed and I was in hospital for three months because of the misdiagnosis when I actually could have been out and about the following day if they put me on the right treatment. So it is a personal issue for me. And I think that there are many things that I've learned from being ill and there are many things that we can improve like the policy paper the urgent policy paper regarding the tracker system that was because of myself and the massive pitfalls that we found when we were when I was trying to get better that it just let me down if it's let me down it must have let a lot of other people down and I don't want to ever see that happen because they very nearly actually killed me sorry just explain the tracker system I'm not familiar I'm sure others perhaps won't be for your bloods so when you get a blood test it goes across to the path lab and they put it on a tracker system well the tracker system used to be a two-tier model which didn't really make sense so it was routine blood tests and then it was slightly more unusual ones and the slightly more unusual ones the doctor had to remember to go into that and often human sort of error can occur so now it's all one system, but it does still need vastly improving. And what do you make, I mean, if we stay on health, um, what do you make of the way that the island has uh, addressed the issue of coronavirus? 
I think we've done excellently. I can't say otherwise. I think the only thing that was a shame was that the nurses pay. I think it was a real sort of double-edged sword that we were putting all these nurses in quite awful situations where they were having to deal with coronavirus. And yet I felt sort of like, because we weren't paying them properly, I felt that was sort of the downturn of COVID really. But hopefully next term their pay will be sorted out. Do you think that's going to be much comfort to them that it might be sorted out next term? Well, I think actually it has to be sorted out because it's been going on for too long now. There's been so many different reports that say they need wage increases. And then I have to say, I think the states keep changing the goalposts. But no other committee is allowed to touch pay. It is completely down to P&R. And I think that's quite right in many respects. Otherwise, we'd have 38 deputies trying to negotiate pay, which I don't think would work. Mm. And in terms of COVID-19 and sort of how the island, I guess, moves on, in your manifesto, you say that, you know, you want the current policy to stay, you know, the the restrictions to ease rather when it's safe um, in terms of getting on and off the island. Presumably at the moment, that means that you would sort of back the status quo for quite some time considering the, the situation in the UK right now. I think we've got to be really careful to say, oh, we want to open our borders because the borders are open. They just got this isolation period. But if we open our borders completely, and I think you've only got to look across to our sister island, the vulnerable people are now being told they should be isolating because there's so many cases over there. Now, I wouldn't want Guernsey almost to become have one tier that you've got the healthy people being able to do what they want, and then another tier that really would not have a voice in Guernsey because they would have to be self-isolating because they're vulnerable, they've got underlying issues, autoimmune diseases, cancer, elderly. I just would not like them to be basically locked in, locked in their house. I don't think that's fair. I'm sure a lot of people would agree with that sentiment, but I guess with any of these things, it's about balancing risks and that there are untold risks to people's mental health and obviously economic <laughs> cost of, of, of having even a 14-day quarantine because it does obviously impact uh, people's ability to travel. But if Guernsey had to go down into a second lockdown, that would be a real cost to our economy. And I don't think many businesses could survive a second lockdown. So we do need to be careful. The only other thing that I would quite like to see is we have business tunnels in. I would like to see that we can have business tunnels out. So 24 hours in business in Luxembourg, Switzerland, England, just to make sure that we are catering for those business people. Just um, on the subject of, of the justice system um, and what you'd like to see happen uh, in the next four, four years, and it is a big, um, it's a big issue discussed on social media quite a lot, and that is unfair sentencing. Um, what's your stance on, on the current criminal sentencing and, and what needs addressing, do you think? I think that um, the whole justice review needs re-looking at, because, and that's why Home Affairs have actually opened up the review. One thing that I would like to see looked at quite closely is the sentencing because you never know what goes on in the court because I haven't attended, so I don't know both sides. But sometimes I do think from the paper, oh, I don't know if if I thought that sentence was a good idea. So I think the sentences do just need looking at. We've got a lot of tools in our box to be able to um, not send people to prison. 
or minor offences. And I think that the that should be used more. But one thing we do need to take into account is that many people actually within the prison have these alternative uh, sentences and don't abide by their rules. So then they get sent to prison. So not all of our prisoners are just pure from the courts. Some of them are actually from not obeying their um, community service or something. Yeah, and, and so sort of getting deeper into the issue, we, we've obviously got um, a, a lot of uh, candidates talking about being in support of, of uh, relaxing rules on, on cannabis. Um, and then you have conversely, you know, most people when uh, child sex offences are raised um, in, in the Guernsey press, someone's been put away, uh, put in prison for a certain amount of years. They always they always say it's it's unfair compared to how long people are getting for the use of cannabis um and it is it's a specific area that you talk about in your manifesto um, how would you like to see that changed well i just i know the law is the law but one thing i do feel sorry for is people with very small amounts getting arrested and it does change their where their path of their life a lot of the times so it can put them on a path which wouldn't actually necessarily be one that we'd want for our society so I think that we need we do it does need looking at health and social care uh looking for other drugs to see what and to provide evidence for the deputies to vote on. We do spend vast sums of money trying to prevent the importation and the consumption and I just think sometimes we need to look at this from a slightly different angle to see if it can be done uh differently. I think overall, I do agree with the decriminalisation of cannabis. But one thing we need to make sure we have in place is we need to have very strong controls. So I wouldn't want to see 16-year-olds just smoking it recreational because it has been proven that in young minds, it can be quite damaging. And finally, uh, Deputy Oliver, if you were uh, to be re-elected, what would be uh, top of your list of priorities? My priorities would be I would like to get um, as president of the development and planning because we've got the five-year IDP review and there's also some quite little things that I think I would like, policies that I would like passed, like the section 46 of land and planning. For abandoned buildings, we have quite a few abandoned buildings in the island that I would like seen cleared, and this law will help to do that. I think also that with my personal professional background, that I do know a lot about property and I know a lot about um, sort of development, that I could be a real asset as the president for that committee. Okay, Deputy Victoria Oliver, thank you for your time. Thank you ever so much for having me. Finally, let's hear from Andrew Barnes, our resident fact-checker. He's been looking into various claims made by candidates at a recent Hustings event I attended. Andrew Barnes, welcome back to the podcast. Um, Plenty to do and a barrage of information, so we appreciate you uh, taking a bit of time out to look at a couple of um, things we'd spotted. And this comes from a Hustings event I went to. I took note of some of the more sort of eye-catching claims being made by some of the candidates. And the first one uh, we wanted you to take a look at concerns uh, GST, goods and sales tax, or is it a general sales tax? I might have got that wrong. And anyway, it's being raised as a bit of a spectre by lots of candidates. Um, And one of the uh, candidates said, 
GST is going to hit the poorest in the community. It's going to hit pensioners the hardest. What uh, do you make of that, Andrew? So from the studies we looked at, we found that it certainly does increase inequality, um, particularly on disposable income in higher income countries. And also a report by Australian Parliament, Australian Parliament on the impact of GST found that like the lower income quintile would bear the greatest burden of GST um, out of their income. So the highest proportion of their income would go towards GST compared to other income quintiles, income groups, even when you're exempting things like food. As for the statement that is going to hit pensions the hardest, that's a bit more complicated. So um, the Loughborough Report on Minimum Income Standards in Guernsey from 2011 is an old report. They found that the cost of living in Guernsey for pensioners was much higher relative to the UK than for working age people. In Guernsey. So any further increases on that are going to hit them the hardest because they already have a relatively high cost of living. But that doesn't quite consider that some of the income from GST could be used towards welfare payments. So a report by Grafton Institute finds that using some of that income from GST um, to increase welfare payments could imp- like outweigh that impact of GST on cost of living. It's difficult to determine how this would apply in the Guernsey context, though, because of the population structure over the next 20, 30 years, with baby boomers uh, essentially becoming a retirees. And this is a massive population group, which is really going to affect the population dynamics of Guernsey. That could really result in a larger burden being placed on the smaller population of working age people. Okay, well, let's go on to the next one. Um, This was a candidate saying, the golden goose is the finance sector. It contributed over... 40%. 40%. So immediately I was kind of wondering 40% of what do they mean GDP? Um, what do you make of that, uh, that statement, Andrew? Yeah, so I was thinking the same thing, but I'm going to assume that they mean GDA, gross value added, which is basically, which is very close to GDP. It's a similar measure. And um, from that, the finance sector contributes about 41% of gross value added. So 40% is roughly correct. Okay. And the next one, uh, a candidate said, We've got lawyers, accountants, they pay no tax whatsoever apart from the employee's tax. Uh, So that's something we need to do. We need a tax system that doesn't put the burden on one sector, the finance. A bit rambly, a bit Trump-like that. Um, But um, what do you make of that? Yeah, so there's a few different things to break down. So there's one, lawyers and accountants don't pay tax whatsoever apart from employee's tax. And then there's the tax system doesn't put the burden on finance specifically. Well, alongside employee tax, they also pay TRP on their offices. So legal and accountancy services pay the higher rate of TRP on their offices, the same as the finance sector, whereas other organi- other services, other organizations with offices pay the lower rate of £20.85 compared to a higher rate of £44.65. As for the tax system putting the burden on finances, the amount that finance pays in corporate taxes is relatively low. It's, it represents about 11.6% of total income. So it's not really a massive burden compared to the majority where 51.4% comes from individual income tax. So the finance sector also pays TRP, which bumps it up a little bit. But again, not all of that corporate income tax comes from the finance sector. It also comes from large retail outlets and the other non-exempt or the higher tax rate and uh, eligible companies. 
Okay, uh, next claim uh, that was made by a candidate at the hustings, uh, we have the rainy day fund, we have £600 million in the bank, so we can bankroll through this crisis. So I think the £600 million comes from the funding of financial response to COVID, um, where £100 million has been approved to be taken from the core investment reserve, also known as the rainy day fund, and up to £500 million can be borrowed with 250 million pounds of this in the short term and 250 million pounds in the long term. But this isn't quite money in the bank because there's loans and a lot of those loans haven't been approved. So only 225 million pounds of credit facility is currently available. And then on top of that, there's a 100 million pounds from the core investment fund, a rainy day fund. So it's not quite 600 million pounds at the point, at the moment. It's just, they could have 600 million if they decided they needed. And the last one's a really thorny issue that uh, Ollie, working as uh, journalists in uh, Guernsey, uh, we come across time and time again. Uh, we are not a tax haven. And this was um, said by more than one candidate uh, in response to a, a question from um, a voter. I mean, this is this is a really difficult one because there are obviously different bodies that assess uh you know the sort of tax havenness of different places i'd be absolutely fascinated to see what uh what conclusion you've come to on this one andrew yeah so i think as you said defining a tax haven is quite difficult because there's so many different definitions but there are three kind of overarching definitions which is as you said jurisdictions with low tax rates the second one is a jurisdiction with strong secrecy protections um, these are sometimes called secrecy jurisdictions instead, because a lot of people consider tax havens to be to do with the former definition, low tax rates. So people try to differentiate secrecy jurisdictions from tax havens sometimes. And the third is kind of a combination, a combination of both, which typically tends to be balanced towards the secrecy jurisdiction side, because that's seen as having the most importance. Alongside that, you can divide these definitions into more practical ones, i.e. how do the definitions affect Guernsey practically? Like, will this affect Guernsey's trade and relationships with other countries? Or there's more academic definitions where we're considering how does it fit the definition of a tax haven, how does it have like a global effect? Okay, so should we deal with the practical side first and what the, you know, the different lists, for example, say? Yeah, so on the practical side, um, we find the two major lists, the OECD and the EU list, Guernsey doesn't qualify as a tax haven according to these two lists. However, there are smaller lists, such as the tax haven list of the Netherlands, which does qualify Guernsey as a tax haven because Guernsey has a corporate tax rate of less than 9%. So again, that's going on more of the tax rate definition. Okay, um, I wonder if it includes itself. Um, and uh, on the academic side, um, what, 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 how's Guernsey faring up? So the major um, list on the academic side is the Financial Secrecy Index, um, which is done by the Tax Justice Network. And as it's implied, this is more, much more on the secrecy side. So Guernsey ranks 11th out of 133 on the Financial Secrecy Index. And uh, like we reviewed how this score was come up with, and we found that their methods and results are largely valid, but there's some contradictions on a couple of occasions. So they'll um, score things in one way and then they'll explain like why that scoring is important in a slightly different way. 
in particular, they rely heavily on information being publicly and freely available, which to an extent could be argued to underestimate the value that collecting data by itself has, even if it remains private. Because if a jurisdiction doesn't collect data at all, that's like, it's pretty much impossible for a company which is breaking the law in a different jurisdiction to be chased up. Whereas at least if they have collected some information, it's possible for the authorities to quickly chase up that information. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so that, that there's a word on the kind of methodology. So um, what do you make sort of overall in terms of uh, taking into account the financial secrecy index and all the other um, markers? So I think by the definitions which have a practical effect, like Guernsey is largely not considered to be a tax haven. From the terms of the secrecy jurisdiction, by the more academic measures, it it, it certainly up there with uh, the more secret jurisdictions. And like that's going to have a greater effect in the future as those, pra- those academic definitions start moving into practical. So for example, the EU directive on implementing public registers in 2022, when that comes out, all of a sudden, we are going to see a practical effect of that secrecy. Interesting. Yeah. If and when, I mean, that's a, that's a future commitment. I'm sure it'll have a big bearing on, on how the island is, is viewed internationally. Andrew, thanks so much for looking into all of that. Was that fun? Yeah, it was really interesting to find out these things, uh, especially on the tax side. It's not something I've looked into as deeply before, so it's really interesting to see how it's assessed. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to look and um, hopefully we'll hear from you again and we'll uh, utilise your your uh, very fine research skills on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out the podcast's audio manifestos too in the same place that you found this episode. To get in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter at Guernsey Daily or you can email us at theguernseydaily at gmail.com. And remember, the full list of candidates is available on election2020.gg. We're proud to be partnered with Guernsey Community Radio, where you can also hear us. Until next time, bye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.